Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat, and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. Welcome back, everyone, to the PA the FI Way podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and I'm really excited for today's episode. We have Wilson and Steph joining us for the show today. So they are a PA and NP couple, and I really like how they're both APPs and can share a lot about their journey towards financial independence and the different smart money moves that they've been making over the years of their fairly short clinical careers that they've had. So would you mind introducing a bit more about yourselves for the listeners? Yeah, thanks so much, Kat, for having us. Um, well, wanted to, you know, just introduce ourselves. Uh, my name is Stephanie. Um, of course, like Kat was mentioning, I'm a nurse practitioner. Um, I think one of the big things is, you know, you want to just talk about how we met originally? Yeah, so... Um... Thanks, Steph. Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm Wilson. I'm a PA, and we actually met. And it's funny because like when we first started working, we worked in the same jobs together. It just happened that way. We tried to find jobs that were separate, but we always got accepted at the same time. <laughs> so we actually met like a while ago and in college in our sophomore year, both kind of pre med, pre pre PA, pre NP, pre anything at the time, sure. pre health, <laughs> and then kind of discovered our our journeys into uh, PA and NP school. So we've known each other quite a while, um, recently proposed. Uh, thankfully, she said yes. So now we're engaged Yay, and congrats. learning about that. But, um, you know, like you mentioned, we are um, pre re- not 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 new grads. That's crazy. A couple of years ago, we would have been new grads, but it's about three years now, mm-hmm. about yeah, three, years three years since we've graduated. And I feel like we've, we've done a lot, both clinically, non-clinically, learned a lot about the profession, but also about finances and just really passionate about sharing our journey. Very cool. Yeah, you guys certainly have lots to share. So I'm really excited to dive in. First, would you share what you do for your clinical practices each currently and what you have done over your three years of practicing? Yeah. So um, see, I graduated in 2019. Um, so I graduated from Toro. Uh, love that program. I still still go back pretty often to teach. Um, after I graduated, um, essentially, I did two fellowships. I did one for PA education and another one for cancer care. Cool. So um, right after I graduated, I um, they essentially taught me the ins and outs of academia and became really, I've always been passionate about education, um, did that. And then I did um, cancer, cancer care fellowship. And uh, throughout kind of the rest of my career, I did inpatient oncology while still teaching as a professor. And then now recently, I, I'm an uh, informatics PA, which is, I know you're like, whoa, it's such a big jump. <laughs> <laughs> um, but essentially, how I fell into that role was um, I was doing a QI project when I was inpatient, um, kind of just optimizing EHR, trying to transition when patients go from inpatient to outpatient, you know, we, we communicate via phone and, but then you, well, like we have Epic, <laughs> why don't we just talk to each other via Epic sure. and log things better? So I was on that QI project and during that journey, 
um, met the IT team, the Epic team, and they're like, you know, you you really like this stuff, and we need someone to essentially train oncology providers um, how to optimize their Epic use. So if you have an onc background, you like talking to providers, you're good at education, like we have a position, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna do it. So that's kind of what I do now in my day to day. Very cool. That sounds like a very interesting job to say the least, for sure. Yeah, it definitely is. It's it's a unique department of of uh, making use of your PA license. Um, in terms of my history, so I, similar to Wilson, so I had a lot of background in terms of working in the medical field. Um, when I was in school, I concurrently worked as a nurse as well. So I worked as an oncology nurse, and that was pretty much a easy transition into working in inpatient oncology as well as a nurse practitioner. So that was what my first uh, nurse practitioner role was. Um, from there, you know, of course, we're dealing with a lot of conversations about end of life, um, you know, probably dealing with death every other day, if not every other week. Sure. Um, so it did become really stressful. Um, so I transitioned to working outpatient where, you know, I'm able to develop those relationships with patients a lot longer term. Um, the great thing about my practice as well, um, being in oncology as well, is that I actually work three days remote, uh, three out of four days. So four tens, um, well, soon to be only three days total. Yeah, she's going part-time soon. So yay, that's <laughs> yay, new. That's cool. <laughs> but it was definitely a really great transition. So that's kind of where my role is now. Very cool. Do you mind sharing how you coped when you were doing inpatient oncology? Do you feel like you were noticing signs or symptoms of burnout or how you were able to manage that? Because I, I could really imagine that'd be quite difficult as a provider. Yeah, um, I think what helped, it's kind of like a pro and cons that we we worked in like sister departments. Originally, we were supposed to be on two different units, two different floors, and then they merged our units. So oh, I'm like, oh, sure. here, we're back together. We're back together again. <laughs> you guys can't Hello. stay apart. Can't stay apart. Um, but I would say like, that's helpful that we were in the same field so we could understand what we were going through. But then it also ended up being everything we talked about. Sure. And I think like the, honestly, probably the first sign of burnout and um, was probably like other people would tell you because we, we, it would be normal between us. Oh, we're tired. <laughs> we're stressed. We're not eating as much. All we do is talk about work. And then when, when, and then if everyone around you is doing that, right. In healthcare, we tend to put on a helmet and you just get whacked on the head. And then you look around, everyone's getting whacked on the head. So then it's normalized. And then you talk to people outside of healthcare and they're like, y'all are crazy. Like, right. <laughs> like, what are you going through? The, but, you know, yeah. what, what was helpful in oncology is it is a very rewarding job. Like mm -hmm. it's, you know, I like to think all PAs and MPs, we save lives every day, like at some, for some extent, but especially in inpatient oncology, we truly did. Sure. So that helped us get through uh, a lot of tough times. Um, I wanted to add on. Um, so Wilson was mentioning that when we talk to people outside of medicine. So I think one of the great things about working in the hospital is that we were only working three days. Yes. So on the other days that we were off, I actually started picking up some real estate stuff and learning about that networking outside of medicine. And it was really enlightening yeah. um, talking to a lot of people too and seeing what's out there. Yeah. And that's when sure. I started dabbling in like non-clinical stuff you know, we can talk about, I, I did some health tech work. So like working in like the health tech industry and also starting a business. So that's kind of a, you might notice this a lot with people who work inpatient, right? Three days work really hard and the other days you're supposed to relax. But in our case, it was during the pandemic. So we couldn't really have fun. So sure. we just ended up finding other things to keep ourselves busy that we were passionate about. So 
Um, in terms of like, I guess signs of burnout, it's the same thing. It wasn't sleeping. Um, other people would tell us, Hey, you seem a lot more tired. You're, you're a little bit more stressed. You're not yourself. And then, um, and then at the time you kind of deny it. And then when you look back, you're like, Oh, definitely, sure, definitely burnt out. But you know, we, we found ways around it. Grateful. We had each other grateful. We had family and friends who will look from an out uh, perspective and they'll try to take care of other things for us. Like, like my mom would cook, <laughs> cook and then she'd clean. And I didn't even, didn't even appreciate these things until like you're kind of out of it. And you, you notice, wow, you know, it's nice to slow down a little bit yeah. too. Yeah, totally. It's great that you had each other for support and then outside support as well. Totally. Mm-hmm. And then let's go back to when you guys were new grads. Since this is a financial podcast, if you don't mind sharing, how much student loan debt did you each graduate with? So for me, um, what I would say is I originally probably had around 150k uh, worth of student loan debt, and for me, my goal was actually to graduate. Like my goal was to graduate with no debt at all. So, and I knew it was possible, at least because I knew uh, in undergrad um, I applied to every scholarship that existed, and I'm like, this is probably doable in grad school too. Like I know someone's done it. And I looked at like some of the other scholarships that exist out there, like the NHHC scholarship, right? There's all these other ones. There are some schools like Chapman now that like will like pay off your entire tuition, which is amazing. Yep. Um, but for me, I essentially had the mentality that like, you know, even if I can't pay off my debt during PA school, you know, I was going to, you know, essentially save a lot and pay everything off afterwards and just like be frugal. But during PA school, I wasn't going to down, go down without a fight. So I literally applied to like over 100, 100 um, scholarships. Wow. And I only got two of them. I only got two. Um, I was not even, I didn't, and then those two ended up paying for, I would say, like 90% of my tuition. Great scholarships. Wow. Really big scholarships. I actually didn't even, like, the last two I applied to, like, I got. And then the, the big one, I was runner up, and then someone else kind of got disqualified. So I ended up getting okay. it. Sure. So most of it was covered. And then I also worked um, during PA school. So I was a PA tutor, okay. a peer tutor. I also did study hall monitor, which was the best job. I just sat there and studied like everybody, nothing really to monitor is just hand out snacks every now and then. <laughs> right. So, and then, um, after graduation, I did like that edu- after graduation, I did the education fellowship. So then sure. I had a stipend for that. Okay. So by the time before I started my first job, I, I paid off my loans. Okay. That's amazing. So to clarify, you graduated with 150,000, but you got those scholarships that knocked off the majority of that. That wasn't after the scholarships. Yeah, they refunded okay, it. Okay, cool. Were any of those scholarships, some of those programs that have a lot of strings attached or not necessarily? Yeah, so so it wasn't. It was the SDS scholarship. So it was a, a what is it SDS or it was like the, it's like, it's a HRSA scholarship. So like a health court one, like a certain schools qualify for it. Um, you know, as we'll probably talk about later, um, we came from a low socioeconomical background. Parents were immigrants, so based on that criteria, like our like, um, I qualified when I applied for it. Um, so that happened to be a very generous scholarship that with no strings attached. Nice, that's awesome. Some of those scholarships they sound great, and then you know, if you dig into the weeds uh, and look into the information, it can be like, well, can seem more like a ball and chain, so to speak, than a blessing. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely have to do your research and look into the fine print. For sure. And do you mind sharing stuff? Yeah, I um, I had a slightly different path. Um, I think one of the things I wanted to first say is that I was extremely lucky that my parents helped me with my undergraduate. So um, because of that, I think we, we both took a year off after um, undergraduate. 
Nice. I was able to work and save up some money. I was extremely frugal for one. <laughs> um, and then also when I started graduate school, um, of course, I went to a private school, Northern California. It's called Samuel Merritt. Um, so it's very, very expensive. And pretty much like the moment I was accepted, I knew that, man, I got to like work or something to help pay this off because I, I didn't want to be stuck with so many loans. And this wasn't something I really thought about too much in depth until, of course, you know, financial aid comes in and they're like, yeah, you want to just sign this box to take out 30K in loans mm -hmm. for this one semester. <laughs> um, so it was, it was pretty shocking. Um, but after my, my program was set up so that after the first half of the program, uh, we got our RN license. And then I had the choice to work full time as a nurse versus like just going to school. Um, so I actually worked full time as a nurse. Just crazy. Just <laughs> like not even like part time. Like my school makes me write a contract. Like I have to sign a contract saying I won't work full time. Yeah. Like your school allows you. And what's great is because you saw other people do it. Yeah. So she knew it was possible. Sure. So mm -hmm. you worked even you want to yeah. talk about it. and I think um well leading up to that I did similar things as Wilson where I worked as like a oh, TA yeah. I worked um you know in the admin part of the school as well so it was kind of a good transition um but working full-time as a nurse and then going to school and doing clinicals during the daytime I did work nights so there were times when I would have pretty much 24-hour shifts yeah would be falling asleep during class which is probably not recommended <laughs> that sounds brutal <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. It it was. It's honestly can't believe like you you did that. Like when we talk about it, it is crazy. Like would have to drive from rotations, then go back to work, and then from work go back to to school. And mm. and she was working inpatient oncology as a nurse yeah. night shift. So it was. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know to lead into that as well. While I was working as a nurse, I made it. We had a lot of discussions about being purposeful about also increasing my salary. Yeah. So my first job as a nurse, I only worked there for about four months. But I would drive like 90 miles one way because it was worth the pay. And then <laughs> sure. after that experience, I transitioned to a hospital job where, you know, I was able to make like $10 more. So we were very purposeful in yeah, terms of strategic. while I was working as a nurse, we also were negotiating to get higher pay too. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't just to pay off the debt, it wasn't just to make money, but also like, hey, you know, certain places, if you have nursing experience, they'll also bump you um, based like when you become an MP. So oh, these okay. are things we kept in mind. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. totally. So you guys shared some of your strategies that you used when tackling your student loan debt. Do you feel like those strategies can work for most PAs and NPs? Or do you feel like that there are certain ones that tend to help more of them, but not everyone should necessarily look for or try to achieve while they're paying back their student loans? Yeah, usually I, I love this question because um, and this is for like for people who are still in PA and MP school. Like a lot of people ask me like, oh, should I be side hustling? Should I be doing these things? The first thing I ask them is like, will you pass? Like, how are you doing academically? Because yeah. even as a professor, I'm like, if you feel like there's enough going on where you're going to be so busy and you're barely keeping up with exams and school is causing you a lot of stress it's not worth it. Like the worst thing that can happen is you not passing your boards and guess what? You still owe the tuition. Yep. So right. that's the first thing I gauge, right? For us, we I like to think we we're pretty academically strong. We had good habits coming in too. We didn't always have good habits, but we learned the hard way in undergrad and then we built yeah. a good foundation coming in. Yeah. Um, and we also didn't have much home obligations. Like sure. we don't have kids. Um, so because of that, we felt like it was, du it, was it was doable. Yeah. Because we were good time managers, we had more free time. We felt like we had more free time and we we're keeping up. So 
you know, for me um, or for Steph, it's like if you're a if your school's allowed you to working as a nurse, depending on where you are, might make sense because the salary is pretty decent. You know, if you worked as a nurse full time, um, in terms of going the scholarship route, I mean, it almost everybody if you can try applying because it takes a few minutes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're gonna have to apply to like jobs anyways. Just get in the habit of applying to scholarships because sure. all it takes is you know, in my case, all it takes is one or two, and then it could change your life. Yeah, that's amazing. So it's worth doing. But you know, one thing I do uh, with a lot of graduates afterwards is saying, "Hey, when you're in, um, if you don't want to like work a job, if you don't want to apply to scholarships, you know, the biggest step I give people is just like if you can, if you're taking out loans, um, take out just try to take out federal loans as much as possible because coming out, there's a lot of strategies you can use. There's it's very flexible. Yeah, you know, no matter I try to tell this to everybody, no matter what student loan amount you have, if it's federal, there's a solution. Mm-hmm. If we can figure out a way out of it and we can figure out a way to get through it um, versus private, it's still doable, but a lot trickier. Yeah. But that's the main thing. It's actually just pass the boards because you need to become a PNP first and to pass and graduate. It's not worth doing all these other things and getting distracted. For sure. Yep. Go to school for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Even when I'm encouraging PA students or other students that are in grad school or medical school about developing their financial education, I always say that it's very important first that you get your medical training first. That needs to be your number one priority. If you are stressing and you know you don't have any time between studying to read a book or listen to a podcast or read a blog, it's not worth it. You definitely need to be focusing mm-hmm. on what you're there for your education for. I, I love that. I, I always joke around. The only exam I almost failed was a peds OSCE because the night before I was studying 401ks, like the, literally <laughs> the night before I was studying 401ks, they didn't make any sense to me at the time. And I, I'm like bad at peds. And I was like, I'm just going to study retirement instead. And I almost failed. So oh I was. I tell people, don't don't <laughs> study first for the stuff that matters. And then you can always learn finances yes, later. Yes, totally. That's funny. So speaking of finances, how did you each learn about financial independence? And then what also drew you to the financial independence community? Yeah, for me, so the kind of where it started was in the second year of PA school. So my school was a three-year program or two or two and a two, two and a quarter, two, 2.7 years. It was an MP, uh, PA and PH program. Okay. So it was, uh, it, it was a little longer. And so during my second year, uh, my family asked me essentially, um, and they've never asked me about money in my entire life. You know, my mom has suddenly asked me, hey, I don't understand this retirement stuff. Can you help me figure out if I'm on track to retire? And at that moment, I was like, I actually have no idea what the hell you're talking. Like I had... And that blew my mind. I'm like, I don't even, and then we're used to knowing things. Right. Like, right, as PAs, we're educators, we're, we're knowledge seekers. I'm like, I don't even know where to start. And that, like, not only made me feel so sad, I was really pissed. I'm like, I actually don't know what to do. So I actually didn't learn about fires first. Like I said, I was learning about retirement. Sure. And just like, what the, what's a 401k? What's an IRA? What are stocks and bonds? And then eventually, kind of going through the weeds, going through reading everything, kind of ended up landing on um um, fire. It was, it was mainly on Reddit. Reddit sent me over to White Cone Investor. Yep. And then White Cone Investor also, then I also started reading uh, Choose FI. Yep. So those were kind of the the intro places, right? Reddit, probably not the best place. I mean, it's okay place to start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> better than better than just asking random people. Because, yeah. you know, as you'll find out, most of it was bad advice. Mm-hmm. So then it was Reddit sent me over to White Cone Investor, who was great. And then uh, Choose FI was a great podcast to also listen to. So that's kind of how I got introduced to the community. Love it. Mm-hmm. 
and Wilson dragged me into it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know about this spy <laughs> stuff? No, let me <laughs> let me tell you all about it. So yeah, it's it's very similar. Where um, you know, because he was so excited learning about this stuff, he was like, oh, I just want to share all this knowledge that I've gained. Um, so of course, by default, I was just there listening to him and learning in passing. <laughs> but I started to realize that you know there was also like I'm a really I like, I'm a social person. I really like networking and stuff. So um, I started realizing that there was like a big difference between like certain types of people. Like I felt like there were a lot of like coworkers I had or like even physicians that I worked with where, you know, I felt like they were so limited by like finances and by, you know, not being able to afford things or not being able to retire. And we saw this in our patient population as well, where, um, you know, we had those patients who on their deathbed, they were not allowing themselves to pass away because they had to take care of someone financially. And you had those patients where they were okay passing away because they were financially okay and you know their family was taken care of. But then they were just thinking like, oh man, like I wish I spent more time more with time. my family. Yeah. I wish I had more time to do the things I love. And then we had that very, very small, you know, group of patients where, you know, they're like, I'm fine with this. You know, I'm just going to have dinner with my family and, you know, this is life. Yeah, and you, you ask of like, oh, are your finances in order? Because like, these are things we have to ask, right? Yeah, sure. When we're inpatient, um, in the life. Are your finances in order? Are people taking care of? Yeah. Have you done the things you wanted in your life? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> you don't need the social worker. You don't need conversation. We've had everything. And it's like, right. Like, what, what are they doing different? Yeah. Yeah. So it was really like a combination of that and then also all just, the wow, information wow, wow. <laughs> that Wilson was teaching me that was just kind of like, wow, like this is how it works. This is like something different. This FI, this financial independence, this is powerful. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like you had an interest with that. So, you know, in some couples, there's only one person that's interested. Other couples, it will be two of them. But I think that it's a little bit more unusual when both are interested eventually. So I think that that's really great that you're able to get on board with Wilson, Stephanie. So that's cool. And then also you guys touched on time. So yes, time is life's most precious Mm non-renewable resource, which I learned through the Choose FI community. And that's how I learned about FI as well by being directed towards their travel hacking podcast episodes. (laughs) And I actually took a podcasting course from Jonathan. So I really love that as well. And the White Coat Investor is a wonderful resource too. So those are all great resources as well. So I think that that's fun how there's all these different types of people that you can learn from and different Mm -hmm. avenues that you can learn. You know, some people do really well with reading, some people do better with listening. And so Mm -hmm. there's all different options of how you can learn to become more financially literate with time. Yeah. I mean, I think it's great. Everyone's so abundant. Like this is knowledge that's, you know, just on the internet and whatnot, but everyone's always so giving with the knowledge and they want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I love it. When, they, when they're in control of their finances, all you want to do is give, you yeah. know, at that point. So they have the, which is very different um, when you experience just a community of abundance. It's very different. Yeah. And I liked also, Wilson, how, you express your frustration of, you know, you are in your master's training in grad school and someone asks you a finance question and you're like, what in the world? Like, why do I not know this? And it really is amazing. They don't teach any of it. They could start some personal finance education as early as elementary school. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I had none of it, elementary, middle school, high school, Mm -hmm. 
undergrad and then grad school. And of course, that led into many financial mistakes as a new grad PA. So it is very frustrating, but yet very sad that that happens in our community, in our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, on the flip side, now that there's more um, uh, people like you, right, and hopefully us starting to raise awareness, because I would say now there is way more people talking about finances. It's still a very small group, but it's I feel like it's a lot bigger than it was uh, a couple of years ago. For sure. I think that it's growing and it's really fun to always meet new people that are into it as well, because we can nerd out a little bit together. Absolutely. Because yeah. people look out from the outside, <laughs> and they're like, you're insane. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, just to go off of that as well, um, I wanted to also agree that growing up, um, neither of us had learned anything from our parents either. Um, I learned that throughout my childhood, there have been bits and pieces where my parents have like mentioned something, um, but they never formally taught us um, at all. And then of course, in schooling, no one talks about finances. They teach like the opposite of what you should be doing. Yeah, I think both both our parents were immigrants. So then, you know, the main thing we learned was to be frugal, sure. which uh, actually is like half the battle, totally. which we're really grateful for. But also, um, so frugal and savers, but then not investors. Yeah. So that was probably the biggest thing. Like they still got money in their Like if I went upstairs, looked in the mattress, like we probably have money somewhere <laughs> tucked in. Um, I think in college, if you asked or in uh, PA school, before I learned about this stuff, if you asked me where I would put most of my money, because I'm like, oh, you know, um, when my paycheck comes in, I can't spend the whole thing. Where would it go in a bank account? Yeah, like that's literally all I knew, and it's um, it's not wrong, but it's it can only take you so far. Yeah. So with your parents being immigrants and coming to this country essentially penniless, and them not giving you formal financial education, how do you feel like that shaped your money mindset to start with, and then? Conversely, how do you feel like you're able to switch over to a better money mindset with time? Yeah, I think for me, it was, man, I feel like now that we've learned a lot, it's like our, at least on for my side, I feel like there's a lot of money mistakes they they made, but it wasn't necessarily their fault. It was, it was really like a financial, I, I, I truly believe like, if you teach people someone, like if you teach someone finances the right way, it's really hard to make mistakes. I mean, it's tough because um, finance is the reason it's, if you look at it from like just a pure objective standpoint, it's actually really simple. It's just math, right? Finances. But what's so hard about it is it's, it's, it's lifestyle and it's emotional. It's kind of like diabetes, right? Diabetes makes sense. Just stop eating bad food, right? For the most part, but then, but you can't change it because it's life, it's embedded in your lifestyle. So with, uh, for me, for my family, you know, one book uh, we, we um, recommend a lot and one book that changed our lives was Rich Dad, Poor Dad, yep. right? Um, and uh, a lot of people resonate, us included, is, um, you know, our parents were a poor dad, essentially. Um, not in a bad way. It's just that there's only one right way, it's traditional way, right? Go to medicine, six-figure job, save, and just work your butt off. And so that, that was really ingrained into us. And it wasn't until we started learning these other things that I really fought against or challenged like what we grew up learning. And then afterwards, running the numbers, meeting people who are doing it the other way, right? Chasing, uh, who are more financially literate and the things they say, it's more consistent. That's what I find. The people who, who learn the same way and uh, are more financially literate, the recommendations they give very similar. And, and especially like Millionaire Next Door, that's the other book I read. I'm like, oh, we all share very similar traits. So in the beginning, it was really hard to undo that mindset because um, you talk to people and no one knows what the heck you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So that's why now we surround ourselves with people who are pursuing fire, who are interested, and it, it feels more normalized, but it was really hard to kind of like, because you're told one thing your whole life, and then even your closest friends and families think this other thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think uh, one thing I wanted to add on to is, you know, Wilson has, you know, referred to a lot of different books and stuff. Um, so one thing that my parents were pretty big on is that, and, you know, in their generation, this was very common too, is that they really learned from word of mouth. Um, they just learned from like who was immediately around them. So one of the things that, you know, we've really learned is by optimizing or a, a way to optimize our financial knowledge is really, you know, reading a lot of different books, kind of cross-referencing mm -hmm. our um, information. Yeah. Get, get as much data points from people that are not related to it. It's like, oh, I know a guy who <laughs> says the same thing. It's like, of course he's going to agree with you because you know the guy. Yeah. But we tried to find as many different books, authors, podcasts, blogs um, of people who um, who probably weren't related or like it's not one giant chain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we cross-reference and if you look at all the stuff they spit out, if you look at the, the same, they will all say the same thing, right? Spend less than you earn and invest the difference and stay the course. Like that, that's it. Like that's literally fired in a nutshell. Yeah. And they all said the same thing. And, and then later we started meeting people who were doing it with us. And then that's when we knew, you know, we're not crazy and this is real. Cool. Yeah, I love Rich Dad, Poor Dad and Millionaire Next Door as well. Those are wonderful books. And if any of the listeners haven't checked them out yet, I'll include a link to them in the show notes where you can either purchase them or check out the audio version as well through Amazon if you haven't read or listened to them already because they're both really good resources for sure. Mm -hmm. And then you have practice in both remote and non-clinical roles. So could you share what you enjoy about remote roles as well as what you enjoy about non-clinical roles? Yeah. So I think remote roles stood out to us. The I mean, I'm biased because I'm introverted. So I mean, that that itself speaks for itself, right? I just want to hang out with my my cat <laughs> and just like not be bothered by people. Doesn't mean I'm not like great in like in person, right? I, I like to say I can be a functional, like extra, like a functional introvert if I have sure. to be. But I, I don't mind being at home and working. I'm, I'm just just as good. But part of the remote act, aspect for me was it also gives you um, time freedom and also location freedom. Yep where um, we, we didn't really have that inpatient, but we, we had a taste of it because um, we only worked three days. So the other days, you know, we could do other stuff. So I'm like, this is really nice. You know, we'll, we'll work really hard, but then we could also do other things on our days off. So I'm like, but what if you can blend the two? Like, I don't have to die and then relax and die. <laughs> like, that's kind of like, this, you know what I mean? It's play hard, yeah. work hard, play hard. Like, I, I'm tired of doing that. So can I just like work normal yeah, <laughs> and yeah. play normal? Um, so remote work, um, really really that was really appealing um my 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 job is remote fully so i'm, I'm non-clinical which i'll talk about in a second but yeah i'm essentially i'm on the computer and then we can work from anywhere for the most part and then same for you because you yeah. do telemedicine mainly yeah so i would say that um, remote work from an extrovert <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's true. So, it's, not, it's not an easy adjustment that for you. definitely was something that i had to adjust to at first um i'm kind of you know the kind of person where i'm like oh i really like talking to my teammates i love the culture um so i do gotta admit the first few weeks i was like you trapped mm -hmm. me in a box <laughs> i'm just in a box all day and i'm like it's great isn't it <laughs> It was it was literally I was in a room with no windows. Oh no. They, and the cat wasn't enough company, right? <laughs> she wasn't in the room oh, with, no. me. with me. <laughs> so he was hogging the cat and the windows. How rude. <laughs> I know. So um it definitely was a adjustment for me at first. But I began to learn that you can definitely foster a lot of relationships remotely as well. Sure. Um and I think, you know, the whole pandemic has really taught us that as well. But I think the most appealing thing that Wilson 
also had mentioned is that it really opened up a lot of doors for other things. Um, so I think when we first started in our jobs, our first priorities was, you know, we got to work really hard. We got to be amazing at our jobs and continue to work up the clinical ladder. And the more overtime that we work, the better we are. Um, but then kind of shifting our mindset where it's like, well, I mean, work is really amazing, but there are also other amazing things in life too. Yeah. Like family, your health, your family, your health. Yeah, exactly. So um, when I shifted that mindset, you know, I, you know, I learned about like, well, you know, not having to be just in the house. Like you can, I can go and visit my parents in Southern California and work I, there. We can go to a coffee shop. Yeah, we've done. We've gone to some like local, like work in the hotel during the day, and then at, at night we can go explore the city. Yeah. So that's opened up options. And also for me, at least I find that I'm more productive, like remotely, because there's depending on your home situation, there's less distraction. So luckily we were able to live in a place where we have doors and like the cat bothers me, but like, that's okay. But it's like, I find that I'm pretty productive, um, Mm -hmm. you know, because even like for our jobs, most of the times you could argue EHR, we're on the computer 80% of the time. Yep. So I'm like, well, you know, when we took like, at least for me, my job is non-clinical now, but for you, it's like, it's also, I mean, it's also really great because I work clinical, but it's it, the remote aspect creates accessibility to patients as yeah, well. Yeah. That's really huge. Amazing. Yeah. Cause people used to fly, cause she works at a major academic institute and people used to fly hours, you know, take plane rides and train trips just uh-huh. to see them. And now you they could be at home and it's pretty amazing to be yeah. able to, you know, world top of the world or on top of the world, expert, expert, uh, cancer people without, you know, having to fly out and, you know, travel so much. That was nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, um, for me, um, non-clinical roles really appealed to me because, you know, it, because I always liked with the MPH, I always like to dabble in QI, uh, data project management things. And I was like, do PAs like do things outside of medicine? And I would say like the nurses did a really good job exploring the nurses do everything. And I'm like, so they kind of paved the path for, you know, like for PAs. I'm like, well, if a nurse, nurse practitioner can do it, like a PA could probably do it as well. Mm-hmm. So I started exploring a lot of uh, different non-clinical roles, mainly in, I think it was informatics. Cause like my background is in tech and data, sure. um, or at least like, I just got really good at the EMR system. And I've always good at looking at patterns, looking at trends, doing projects. So, um, you know, I was like, oh, I have this background. I have this education. Can I use it in any way? And Luckily, I think more, I think healthcare is becoming more uh, data centric. It's more um, computer heavy. Everyone's on the computer. So uh, ended up landing in this role. And what I like about non-clinical roles is it's also more flexible and um, you have more control of your schedule. So that was really big for me that uh, for me, it's project based. So I, it's not like I I just get slammed by patients. I get slammed by projects, but at least I can choose (laughs) how, (laughs) what my schedule looks like, which is nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I work clinically, but 100% remote right now, which I absolutely love as well. So I can definitely relate to, you know, the benefits that you guys touched on for sure. And back on episode 101, I talked about the seven benefits of telemedicine for both patients and providers. So you guys touched on access and flexibility and all sorts of things. I do think that it's funny that you two did discuss, you know, introvert versus extrovert about it too, because (laughs) I encourage people if they think that they want to dabble or try telemedicine remotely from home that they really, you know, self-reflect and think, can you manage not being around people that often? And like you said, Stephanie, where you're trying to form your own network and make those connections, maybe in a more creative role, 
But then Mm -hmm. you have those other benefits where you can practice medicine differently and you can often, you know, travel or not be at your home if you don't absolutely want to or need to be during the time too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was uh, shocked. I'm like, you don't like being in a room without people in it. She goes, <laughs> No, this is horrible. And I'm like, I'll grow. And she's like, It's not growing on me. But then I think you've learned no, to connect to people. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely been a learning process. But I've I've been surprised. You're actually really able to develop a lot of really great relationships with people online, <laughs> like <laughs> over the EHR when you're sending messages or on email. Um, and Zoom. I mean, honestly, Zoom has been a game changer. Yep. (laughs) Sure. And so if there are some PAs or NPs that are listening to this episode that are thinking they want to try either telemedicine remotely or non-clinical roles or both of them at the same time, what would some of the advice be that you guys would have for them about how to find those types of roles and maybe what to look for? Yeah, I would. That's a great question. I would say same advice I probably give like undergrads and like uh, high school students uh, shadow and just like now networking is so much easier compared to before. Um, I think for me, looking into informatics, there it's a very niche role. It's like not not a lot of people knew about it. And the only time I saw it was because the AAPA sent out an email showing, hey, there's a PA doing something cool in informatics. I'm like, what is this? Yep. So and then that was like the only thing I could find. So I, I emailed them and like messaged them on their LinkedIn and they like they got back to me, some of the PAs out cool. there. Um, but that's what I tell people to do. And, and then like that's how I found my health tech role. I just go on LinkedIn and just like, oh, you're in health tech. How'd you get in health tech? So I just messaged and people I find that who are like doing pretty well and happy with their jobs for the most part, don't mind sharing. Like they're, they're in a pretty good place and like, it's pretty abundant and you just have to like, obviously not go in and be like, tell me everything, how to, you know, you kind of have to be courteous and like nice and respect their time. But, um, these jobs are not, not necessarily hard to get into. It's just, it's, you have to network. You just have to network and just do as much research as possible and connect with as many people as possible. I think what's nice is like, once you see that it's possible, then -hmm. you know, there's a way. Right. Totally. Mm-hmm. So kind of a vague answer because it's still there's no defined path for it. You just have to ask people, honestly. Yes, for sure. And it's one of those things too, where if once you do know it's possible, then you can gain some seniority and then also do some negotiation. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you can start negotiating for things like remote, like for you. Yeah, I think you know when I had originally started my job, um, it was actually advertised as like a fifty percent remote position. Yeah. But then I think over time, you know, they realized that a lot of the role, you know, were able to really do remotely. And when I would go on site, I'd be sitting in a room by myself on a computer. Yes. (laughs) Um, So definitely like having those open conversations with your management, also your team as well to see what actually makes sense. Yeah. And and that's part of like the other thing with FI. um, And um, once you have like achieve some level of like financial freedom, um, you actually have a lot of leverage too. So if you want things to happen, like they're like, oh, you can't work remote. It's like, I'm gonna quit if you don't let me work remote. And they're like, you can work remote. I'm like, really? Like that's, we have to play that game. So it's scary when you're a new grad, um, unless you have another job lined up. So that's sometimes that's how people do that. Get another job lined up and then not blackmail your employer, but like negotiate hard against them. And then they'll they'll hedge because it's a lot harder to replace you than it is to kind of switch your job. But it's very nerve wracking as a new grad if you have debt and these things. But once you gain control of your finances, these things get easier. Exactly. Yeah. It's not blackmail. It's leverage, Wilson. Yes. 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 We love. It's literally leverage. Actually, I I did that for my job. Yeah, you did. (laughs) Unintentionally. 
I was uh, I was actually working on doing like a side project similar to Wilson's and initiating that at my current facility. So I wanted to do EHR um, teaching as a side project. Sure. Um, I'd reached out to that team within my organization and then he had actually said, oh, we're actually looking for, you know, someone to do this role. Like, do you want to interview? So I ended up interviewing. Um, he offered me the job and then my manager, my current manager found out because of course, you know, it's within the same facility. And um, she just like messaged me and was like, yeah, like, what do you need to stay? (laughs) What do you want? Tell me what hours you need. Do you want to work 12s, 10s, 8s, three days, four days, five? It was, it was, yeah, it was definitely negotiation. Super cool. So if you can't leverage like finances yet, which a lot of us can't in the beginning, you can leverage another job. Right. So leverage another job opportunity you have lined up. Yeah, definitely. And I think most organizations and employers can recognize that it costs a lot of time and money to replace you and that you're a valuable team member. But sometimes Mm -hmm. it'll happen like myself where my previous employer would not budge and negotiate even though I felt like I had leverage because they were losing 30 to 50% of their med providers and tons of turnover, did not want to retain people. And I was seeing 80 to 90% of people remotely, but they wouldn't budge and let me just do 100% remotely. So it was like, okay, well, like you said, Wilson, where you're not at financial independence, but you're in a good place financially that you do have that bandwidth and that space of saying, well, okay, by then, you know, I'm going to go find another job. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't always work. But you know, sometimes you can negotiate and have leverage within your current role. But sometimes it can just open your eyes and show you that you need to move on to another role. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then you guys have grown an impressive real estate portfolio. So changing topics a little bit here. Tell us why you like real estate investing and how you learned how to do it. Yeah, no, uh, love this question. You know, I usually like starting this off with, um, for us, like we're very like financially transparent people. So for us in the very beginning, like we essentially started at zero. Um, I mean, a lot of us start at negative, right? But we found ways to mitigate it, right? Steph worked um, during um, NP school. I applied to every scholarship known to man. Um, I applied to a trampoline scholarship, for God's sakes. Like, <laughs> what write does that about even trampolines. <laughs> it was like, talk about a trampoline. Like, t- I forgot what it was. But then like, I'm like, there's probably no one that's going to apply to this. Like, I could probably win it. And then like, I didn't get it. I'm like, damn it. <laughs> It was like for like a thousand bucks, like write about a trampoline and then you could win this. It was crazy. Anyways, so we did everything we could. Um, and then when you go through the five community, you're probably gonna learn about index funds. So, you know, investing in index funds, save less than your And we did that and we did that really well. Uh, we probably saved close to 80% of our income. Wow. That's uh, quite impressive. Yeah. Yeah. And it was um, a combination of yes, frugality, high savings rate, but we also worked multiple jobs yeah. too. And that wasn't necessarily by choice. It was mainly because we graduated during the pandemic and there was such a demand for work and we were workaholics sure. that we ended up working. Nowhere to go. There was nowhere to go and then also and nowhere to travel to. But also like there was a need because what we did was valued. Yeah. Right. Um, inpatient oncology, you know, they, didn't sh- they can't shut that down. So we, we just worked every shift possible. Schools still have to, um, at least PA schools were still open. So I also taught part time. Sure. And because of the flexibility, we worked a lot, you know, gave up a lot of time of some of our health too. But, you know, what came of it was money and luckily high savings rate. So, you know, we were, um, when when I was first running the numbers with Steph, I'm like, Steph, 
we're on track to retire uh, or like you're on track to retire. Like one of us is on track to retire in 10 years go part-time and go part-time or like one of us can go or like I can go part-time but like one of maybe one of us will go part-time but like we're we're doing pretty well yeah like I think we've grown even to date now our index fund portfolio is around 800,000 that's now amazing combined yeah thanks and <laughs> would have been higher but there's a dip but it's slowly rebounding now which is nice but as we know it doesn't it doesn't matter we can't touch it so we're just looking at sure. it um but I think we had a think a realization when especially during the pandemic like I got really sick we got really sick during the pandemic and um, it's scary being like young and healthy. Like we're in our third, like I, I just turned 30 um, being like young and getting sick, like for no reason. Mm-hmm. And then I think a good mentor um, once asked me, Hey, if you uh, passed away today and on your tombstone, it just said, Wilson, the PA, would you be happy with, with that? Is that what you want to be known mm-hmm. as? And I was like, that was so powerful. I'm like, no, I don't, I don't want to be just the PA who worked himself to death. Um, I want to be more. Yeah. And then um, I think stuff's always been like that. She's always understood. Um, and, you know, when I said, hey, we're just going to continue working really hard and just saving and putting in the next funds, but do it for 10 years, it's going to be free. She was oh, like, huh? one of us, is one of us free. might be free. And I was just like, yeah, that's too slow. <laughs> she, she told me it was too slow. Sure. I'm like, well, you, you know, traditional retirement is like 30 years, you know, I mean, 20, 30 years. And she was like, no, it's too slow. I said it was too slow because my, I, we had more. Well, anyways, I had this vision. <laughs> I had this vision where I didn't want to, I didn't want to be stuck at home with all the housework. And I wanted us to equally share that. So I was like, if I go part-time, you're yeah. going part-time. <laughs> That's yeah. valid. So essentially, the the question she um, posed to me was, is there a way for us to retire or both of us go part-time in five years? And I was like, well, index funds, I can only go, they only work so fast. Mm-hmm. They, you can't, they're, vol- they're volatile, right? Yeah. So I mean, over time, they're pretty stable, but day-to-day, they're swings. Mm-hmm. And you can only go faster by saving more. But like at 80%, we're pretty tapped out already. I'm like, <laughs> we can eat beans and rice, but that's not going to make that big of a difference. Yeah. And around that time, you know, I'd mentioned that um, on my off days, I was also like kind of dabbling into real estate. So through that networking, we actually met a lot of people who are doing real estate investing as well. And like these people, they were also super young, like they were 30s and they know essentially we're financially free Crazy. able to like yeah. buy their parents a house retire their parents buy a porsche i was like my goodness this is crazy yeah. <laughs> and, so and like what we like why we like real estate and it's not for like everyone i would say like it is it takes it's a lot of money it's a lot of work it's a right. lot of, it's all learning and it's not passive anyone tells you real estate is passive they're lying yeah, right. even <laughs> even syndications are pretty active sure. um, in the beginning mm-hmm. Um, but for us, if you do real estate correct, um, it is actually the best asset you could buy if you do it correctly, mm-hmm. right? In terms of things like cash flow appreciation and also tax benefits, uh, mm-hmm. they can do things that stocks can't do. But granted, there are way more mistakes than you know. You can't really mess up an index fund. Yeah. You just press some buttons, and mm-hmm. you know you get it. With real estate, you can ruin lives. Sure. Mm-hmm. So we do. For us, we did a lot of research and found out if done correctly. And if it fits your situation, real estate can, can be very powerful. And mm-hmm. uh, and we had a lot of proof where we, we met people who did it well. We met other healthcare buyers who did it well. And then we were convinced, hey, a lot of their similar, like we have similar backgrounds, similar incomes, similar goals. We t- all want to retire in five years. So, all right, we'll, we'll start learning. And that's how we kind of got started. You want to share mm-hmm. like what our portfolio, what that looks like right now? Um, so we started um, a couple years ago. So in 2021, 
um, a little less than two years ago. And currently we have two duplexes, so two long-term rentals. Yep. Um, so we rent them out to tenants, one-year leases. Um, and then we have two short-term rentals. Uh, so we place it on Airbnb. Yeah, Airbnb. One's a lake house. The other one's a Greyhound converted tiny home, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. And then recently we uh, got into a apartment co- uh, partnership. So it was like a 52 two. unit, which was super cool. Um, never thought we'd buy an apartment together with people, but um, it's crazy how in two years so much has changed. Yeah, that's awesome. I love how you guys thought that index fund investing was a good place to start, but you guys were a little bit more antsy and aggressive and decided you wanted to add real estate investing and you guys made it happen. I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're definitely firm believers that like you have to have that strong yeah. financial foundation. Yeah. Like the only times I recommend people going into real estate is when you're coming from a place of financial strength. Mm-hmm. That's what I have to say. Because otherwise, I would say for the vast majority of people, probably index funds is the way to go. Yeah. Right. Unless you have very specific goals and you have intent and purpose for like what you plan to do in real estate, just don't do it because you want to own the building. Don't do it because yeah. it's like sexy and everyone's doing it. Like do it because you have a, like, a real goal that you're like, you're committed to doing yep. mm-hmm. um, because it is a lot of time. It is work um, and it's a, a lot of money, but it, it can be worth it. Um, just to have, to have to make sure it's, it's right for your situation. Sure. So I'm sure this is a very common question that you guys get, but do you guys self-manage or do you have property managers? Do you mind sharing your experience with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So really good question as well. Um, so for our long-term rentals, we do have property managers. Um, and that's, I mean, truly with the property manager. As close spend, to passive. Yeah, it's very, very passive. I probably spend like an hour a month maximum for the two duplexes. Yeah, sure. Actually. So just as passive as like the index funds, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. Um, for the short-term rental, we do self-manage. Okay. So well. that it's a definitely a ton of automation on the back end, setting up systems appropriately. And luckily we have the... IT guy <laughs> with the systems and technology. So sure. we're able to set up a lot of systems. <laughs> Definitely. Um, and then also a lot of like networking and building really strong team members. Boots on the ground. Yeah. Really good boots on the ground. We have a cleaner, handyman. Designer, like a, you know, contractor, we electrician. Got, we got lumberjacks. They just chopped down this gigantic tree in front of our house. Wow. And it's, she actually did that today. She was coordinating. Yeah. We're getting um, the bus fixed up. It's more modern now. And we also chopped down all these trees around mm-hmm. our house. And she was doing this. During clinic. During <laughs> clinic. Like. While training someone. <laughs> watching them on our remote cameras. And she's actually, you're actually incredible. It's crazy. You, did that. <laughs> you do that. Yeah. Good multitasking. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, um it's like, well, like with finances, we tend to ma- like, um. I think our kind of philosophy is like, you should know how to self-manage everything. It doesn't mean you should like do all of it, mm-hmm. but you should know how to, if, if it was up to you. But for us, even like for my finances, like we have two CFPs that I consult mm-hmm. to not to manage my finances, but to um, curbside sure. them per se, like just to double check. Hey, I'm not crazy. Right. Same for real estate. We have mentors, we have attorneys, mm-hmm. we have CPAs who will, who will yell at us if we do things that don't make sense. Right. But you know, we we sell, we try our best to self manage as much as we can, but then you also have to learn how to delegate yeah. too. Yeah, definitely, that's huge for sure. Cool. Yeah, I've seen some of your pictures of your bus on Instagram, and that certainly looks really cool. We're thinking about potentially doing some RV traveling a little bit. We'll have to see if that happens or not. But I'm like, oh, that looks so fun. 
<laughs> That's so exciting. Oh my yeah. gosh. I absolutely love the idea of RV traveling. <laughs> you see different things all the time. Yeah. She had a patient who she saw remotely who oh. was traveling the world. Um, That's awesome. And then they popped out to the side of the road on the RV. Like, where are you? Oh, I'm uh, on the way to Down in Arizona or Texas this time. <laughs> yeah. This is great because these are like oncology patients, sure. you know, and they're like still living their life and. Um. It's it's so great. And then she can see them remotely in their RV. It's amazing. Yeah, Cool. And then do you feel as though there are any other pieces of information or other final thoughts that you all have for the listeners today? Yeah, I would say, I think like generally where, even though like, I feel like we've accomplished a lot. And um, what I tell people is like, you have to always start with the foundations first. Like, you know, um, like I do coaching now, I, I help out a lot of PAs, NPs, and I say, like, I actually won't move forward for a lot of people unless they get the fundamentals down. Like within the two big things I would probably say is one, like understand why you're like, it's knowing your why, right? Why are you even doing this in the first place? So one thing I always ask uh, the clients I work with, it's like, okay, if I take away, so actually if I give, not, if I give you all the time in the world and all the money in the world, and I took away all societal pressure, like what would you be doing with your life? Sure. Because right, no one's ever asked us these things. Um, and and then make sure they actually know the answer to that. Like they'll, sometimes they'll give me like a, a BS answer. I'm like, oh, no, I told I asked a lot of my clients do this where I ask them all the money in the world, all the time in the world and no societal pressure. What would you be doing? Oh, maybe I'll work like one day less. And I'm like, eh, <laughs> you're not really. No, like if you really if I if I gave you all the time and money in the world and no one, like, you know, batted an eye, you would still work. So like that's how hard uh, healthcare workers are. Yeah. Right. We, we were committed to this profession. But I want to sometimes take that take that helmet off and say, hey, like there's more to you than being a PA or NP. Like what would you be doing if we didn't have to worry about these things? Because that's what financial independence is, right? That's the whole point of chasing it. You're not chasing a millionaire. You're not chasing building this gigantic real estate portfolio. You're chasing time freedom and also like money freedom. Exactly. And in order to do that, um, you have to know your why, be true to yourself for it. And then afterwards, have to spend less than you earn. You have to, because that's the that's the factor. Right. Spend less than you earn and then find ways to increase your income. Um, and then from there, you can't really go wrong. There's a lot of other things. There are a lot of different ways to building wealth, but it all starts with knowing your why and also spending less than you earn. Yeah, that's wonderful advice for sure. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you both Wilson and Stephanie so much for taking the time today to share your story and the amazing progress you guys have made on your financial independence journey. If the listeners have any questions or like to connect with each of you, how could they reach out or find you on social media? Yeah, so I have uh, two places. I think the first place is um, on, um, I have a website. It's called thefinancehospital.com. A cheesy name, but you know, in my in my head, a lot of us, when we graduate, we're in financial trouble. <laughs> so, uh, you know, stick you in the hospital and we'll fix you up. That's the thought behind it. I love it. the name. Uh, but we're also, I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's because clinic was someone took finance clinic. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm like, fine, fine. I'll take the hospital. No one took hospital, but um, we also have uh, Instagrams. Um, so my Instagram handle is uh, Wilson underscore invest, and then Stephanie. And then mine's Steph underscore estate. And so we try to post pretty regularly. We just kind of show what we're doing in our day to day. Try to drop some financial pearls, some knowledge, and also um, some real estate. But you can always check out like things we're doing, clients we're helping. Um, but just really just, the, you know, our goal is just to show like what's possible. Mm -hmm. Like when you take control of your finances and for us, the moment we figure out 
that, hey, someone similar in my shoes um, is doing great things, then for us, we stop making excuses and we say, if they did it, then it's possible. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And I think that the listeners will have received much advice from you guys over the course of this episode. So I really appreciate both of your time. Thanks for sharing your experience and your story on your way to financial independence. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Likewise, it always wonderful. great connecting with, a, with another PA who, like you said, we can nerd out about this stuff. Totally. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. Please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on, but more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.